If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It is uh, the Wednesday hump day edition of Hamilton Today on 900 CHML and 980 CFPL in London. Good afternoon. I'm Tad Michaels, and nice that you're with us this afternoon. And we have, uh, as always, a lot to talk about this afternoon. Now, um, we will be talking a lot about Hamilton politics in the next little while, uh, specifically about a couple of reasons and a couple of uh, issues. Uh, First of all, is the... We're having a election coming up soon, a civic election, as are all cities and towns in the province of Ontario. But are, are most councils kind of lame duck right now? Because there's not really a lot being done till the election. Councillors, are they mailing it in? Are they going to their committee meetings? Well, we have somebody who has a keen eye and a keen interest on what's happening at Hamilton Council. Uh, He'll be joining us a little bit later on this hour. This is actually kind of neat because everybody's talking about how much they miss Zellers. Well, the Bay is bringing Zellers back, but it's a digital first shopping journey. What does that mean? Our guest will tell us exactly what that means. Today, if you didn't know, is Black Cat Appreciation Day. Now, we've heard stories about black cats being bad luck and, you know, how if you see one in front of you crossing your path, you get out of the way or, you know, try to avoid it. Have they gotten a bad rap, so to speak? Well, we have uh, a guest who is well known to our listeners on 900 CHML, uh, Diana Weeks. She is a cat owner, a black cat enthusiast, and she will be talking about black cats and how they're misunderstood and... She'll tell us her story about that coming up a little bit later on. Really looking forward to this segment coming up at 5.20 this afternoon, because as we mentioned, uh, I believe yesterday, this is the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Canada-Russia Hockey Super Series, uh, and a CBC documentary, a four-part documentary, is coming out next month to coincide with that particular event. Um, and it premieres on Wednesday, September 14th. The last show will actually be shown Wednesday, September 8, uh, 28th, which coincides with Game 8 that happened 50 years ago. Well, a guy who worked in um, Vancouver television for a while and then uh, kind of shifted and moved uh, to the United States is involved in this movie and is involved in the documentary, and I'm curious how he got involved why he got involved, and I was man. I was lucky enough to see um, a little bit of a sneak peek of the fourth uh, show in that series, which is the show that deals with the uh, 1972's Game Eight and all that went with it. And it really is a history lesson because if you're of my vintage and you think back to 1972, where were you on that eventful day on uh, September 28, 1972? Everybody knows where they were when they watched uh, Team Canada take on the Soviet Union and how emotionally gripping it was and all the stuff that Team Canada went through and had to battle, not only on the ice, but a lot of political stuff as well. So we'll be hearing from the person who is involved in that particular documentary. It's a fascinating look at what happened. And as we say, it is a history lesson because everybody talks about, and this is no disrespect to Sidney Crosby, and the goal in uh, Vancouver in the Olympics that had won the gold medal for them. And, and what happened here, cops Coliseum then in 1987 when it came to the goal from Mario Lemieux. But if you... Um, or any type of uh, person who knows about hockey and Canadian history and just what that particular series meant, uh, then uh, this is something that I think you'll be interested in, and uh, probably, hopefully, you'll have your DVR set uh, for the uh, CBC uh, shows that start on uh, September the 14th. So there's a lot going on on the program today, as we say. Uh, Also, we'll be talking about uh, some stuff going on in the city of Hamilton. There was a big boom today, a black cloud over the city, literally. A lot of upset people. Why did it happen? Why didn't we get any warning about this? Why was the warning not issued sooner? And a lot of people are asking questions and pointing the fingers uh, at Stelco. What happened? Why did it happen? And uh, what can we do about it? 
So we'll hear uh, that as well uh, coming up a little bit later on. And by the way, the poll question today at AM900CHML on Twitter is the following. Are you more comfortable using the imperial system or the metric system? Now, I know that there are still people that hang on to the old imperial system when they talk Fahrenheit. And I was on the air years ago, and I remember the year was 1977 when we first started to move away from imperial to metric. And we'd be giving the temperature and cell- phones went nuts. What are you doing? What, what, what is this Celsius? What is this millimeters? What is this kilometers? By the way, for people, just a sidebar here, for people that do weather on television or radio, it's kilometers. It's not kilometers. And the reason I say that is when we have rain, is it millimeters? No. Same thing. Anyway, on off my tangent. So that's the poll question of the day. Still time to vote. A couple of hours left. Uh, Twitter at AM900CHML. Are you more comfortable using the imperial system or the metric system? The Bay is bringing Zellers back, but now it's calling it a first digital first shopping journey what does that mean should we look at this as good news glad you asked the question bruce winder is a retail analyst and author of retail before during and after COVID 19 and joins us this afternoon for a few minutes bruce thank you for joining us how are you good i'm doing well thanks for having me on the program so let's talk about this now. Zellers, uh, let's go back a little bit uh, and talk about um, why a few years ago, I know they made the decision to basically shutter and close all the Zellers. Were they, was it basically because it, they weren't profitable, or was there a bigger thing that they wanted to do here? Well, I think it was a combination of a few things. I mean, Zellers was once a once-mighty retailer, um, and Walmart came in in 94 and sort of bulldozed them. And after that, you know, they were bought and sold, bought and sold, and they started to pick things apart and sell off assets. And they got to a point where, you know, they were still making money, I think, but it wasn't, you know, super profitable as it used to be. And they got an offer they couldn't refuse from Target in the U.S. and sold the whole kit and caboodle, at least the leases, for $1.8 billion. So, Bruce, I know that there has been some talk about um, what's going on with the name Zellers. Kind of fill us in, if you will, on the, uh, legal issues, family fights, the trademark, uh, and kind of uh, where that is going and what that could lead to. Yeah, that's an interesting sort of sidebar that may have quite a bit to do with today's announcement. Um, You know, allegedly, Zellers forgot to renew the trademark for Zellers. HBC forgot to renew the trademark for Zellers. And a family in a family business in Quebec uh, opened up a couple of Zellers stores and a Kmart store. Mm -hmm. And that got the attention of HBC, and now they're suing them. And, um, you know, I have a feeling this is part of that... uh, uh, support is they're saying, hey, you know what? We were serious about the brand. Look, we are using it. So please give us our name back. You know, I think that's at least part of the equation here in terms of today's announcement. Now, when they talk about, as we said uh, off the top uh, this afternoon, uh, when they're talking about what's going on at Zeller's and they're calling it a digital first shopping journey, uh, tell us about that because yeah, obviously it believes uh, that leads me to think that right now they're just looking at basically almost like people do with Amazon, just do everything online. Is that correct? Well, it's actually, it sounds like it's digital first, but there's also a side order of uh, brick and mortar, mm. because what they've signaled is that they're going to take some Bay stores, and they've got a lot of extra space in the Bay, right? Because there's not as many people shopping there anymore. So they've got some space, so they're going to turn it into some select Bay stores into a ze- little mini Zellers. And then, you know, if digital first means they're trying to make it all happen online. And uh, you can see why they're thinking that, because they spent a ton of money in the last few years building this mega warehouse that has robotics in it, and it's one of the best in class in terms of picking and packing online orders. So they probably figure, hey, let's use that technology. So it sounds like it's a bit of a hybrid approach between digital and brick. Now, um, you talked about Walmart coming in. At the other end, uh, GT, uh, they, the exactly. nickname, of course, GT Boutique. And then yeah. uh, underneath that, when it comes to the, uh, the price point, is Dollarama. Might Zellers try to, if you will, come up the middle between Walmart on one side and those real discount places on the other? Yeah, they might try, but it's going to be real tough because, uh, you know, the discount game is, is really tough. It's low margin, and it's based on volume. And it's based on a low cost structure. And 
Um, you know, I'm not really sure that uh, there's a lot of room there for them because Giant Tiger has gotten a lot stronger, a lot fiercer, pardon the pun, um, than it was before. The dollar stores have expanded significantly. Dollar Tree, you know, has really expanded in the last several years since sellers left. So th- there's not a lot of meat on the bone for them to go after right now. And I'm not really sure, you know, they're going to be able to be competitive on price because price is a volume game. The more you buy, the lower the price. And they're starting out small, so just can't see them getting beyond a niche category here. You know, it's interesting when you talk about Giant Tiger, Bruce, you will go into them, and now they they have a whole section in the store for uh, things like milk and eggs and bread and uh, butter and cheese and, and all the stuff that you would normally get at a grocery store. I think that's a real strategic move for GT. It is. They're smart. <clears throat> they know that they can expand and take some of that business. Walmart has done really well with grocery if they can get the customer coming in every week, you know, for those staples, then they'll pick up some soft goods where they make all the money. So it's very much a strategic move to have grocery. So uh, when would uh, this move by the Bay and Zellers, uh, when uh, would people start uh, being able to uh, go back and shop at Zellers the way here comes, the way that they used to be? Yeah, my understanding is that they're going to launch this thing in uh, early 2023. So uh, just a few months from now, I'm not sure how many stores. You know, it's not hard to launch a website, but uh, and I certainly don't think it'll be similar to what it was before. I think it'll just be a fraction of what we saw before. But it gets people excited because there's a it hit a chord with Canadians in terms of nostalgia today, and uh, you know for for obvious reason. But I'm not sure that's going to translate to actual uh, dollars and cents. Is the um, you know shopping and going back to you know the way it was nostalgia? Is that still a big thing? Because I know when I get home tonight and mention this to my wife, she'll get all oh Zellers. We remember we used to shop there not that long ago, and it just seems maybe for the um, a certain demographic that kind of going back to the past, so to speak, is something that they really look forward to do. Yeah, there is, there is sort of a, a discussion there. There's a piece there where people love to reminisce. They think of easier times before COVID and all the inflation and everything we have. Um, but, you know, and that's good. But realistically, you know, is that going to translate into an ongoing business? That's really the question, right? There's, there's a lot of discussion today. This new cycle is going to be jam-packed with Zellers. Hey, when it launches, we'll all talk about it again. And then, you know, when it launches, people will check it out once online and check it out once in the store maybe. But then will they come back? That's really the question. I think the answer is no, at least en masse. But uh, it makes for some interesting discussion today. You know, it's uh, interesting, too, because it wasn't all that many years ago. We actually talked about this uh, here at the station today. and It wasn't that many years ago that Target, of course, came across the border. People were excited at first, and then that kind of really dissolved relatively quickly. We're hoping that that isn't the case here with Zellers, because obviously competition is good. It really is. We need more competition in Canada and uh, in a number of fronts, grocery as well as, <clears throat> you know, anything to do with discount. Walmart kind of has a lot of it by itself. So, so yeah, competition is always a good thing. I hope they succeed. Uh, but my heart of hearts says it's probably going to be tough, a tough ride. Well, we'll see what happens the early part of next year, certainly not in time this year for the Christmas rush. Uh, Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Thanks for the update on The Bay bringing Zellers back. Again, much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on the show. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I would suspect that at an Italian wedding, sometimes they play this music and he gets up and he dances around and uh, has a good time. But we're going to talk about Hamilton City Council instead, which is not quite as entertaining as seeing this man, man on the dance floor. But I digress. Is Hamilton City Council in lame duck territory? And if so, what does that mean for the city? And our guest, former Mayor Hamilton and a real whiz on the dance floor, Larry Deani, thank you for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure, Ted. So nice to hear from you. <laughs> you just- shall, I, shall I make the announcement about... Uh- your candidacy or do you want to save that for yourself? No, I'm not. You keep telling me to run for it. No, I'm saying it again. I will. I, this is like Richard Nixon. If uh, selected, no, I'm not running. 
I'm not <laughs> running. My job is to sit here and be an impartial observer, a keen observer of what's going on. So thank you, Larry. I know you're one of the people who thought I should. I am not running in Ward 4. There. <laughs> End of statement. Now, let's talk about the people that uh, will be running for council. But right now, because the election, of course, is in October, and we're in uh, you know the dog days of summer, uh, getting toward the end of uh, August. Uh, is the term lame duck basically? Uh, does that describe members of Hamilton Council two months out from the election? <laughs> so it sounds like an insult, doesn't it? You know, they're lame duck, and and of course uh, they're. All kinds of listeners uh, thinking that maybe they've been lame duck the whole term. Uh, I am not one of uh, those that might believe that at all. It actually is a, a term that describes a period in uh, a governance cycle where uh, because the majority of councillors or a certain percentage, a fairly high percentage of councillors will not be returning for sure. And in our case, we've had the mayor and an additional, I believe, four councillors uh, declare that they're not coming back uh, next term because they're not running again. Um, then uh, the, the, uh, the threshold has been met uh, for a council to be in a situation where they cannot make uh, decisions that they will not have the consequences for uh, if they were to return, because they're not returning. So they're prevented from making some financial and other decisions uh, as the result of that. And, and that's good practice, because if you make a decision today, uh, you should be around to see the consequences of your decision. And if a, a good sizable number of councillors are not returning, they will not be around to see the consequences. And the fear, of course, not that they would do this, but the fear is that they would make a foolhardy decisions just for the heck of making them. Um, and, uh, you know, the devil take the hindmost because I'm not going to be there uh, to be accountable for those decisions anyway. And so it, that's what they're doing. And it's interesting, Larry, when you mention that, because there are those wags who follow people City Hall and uh, have watched it for years that would say, well, all council does is defer and uh, put off and uh, make sure that the next council deals with this. And this is months or years before the election. So there are those that, Larry, that would say uh, this really isn't any anything new to them. Well, let, let me tell you of a practical case. And, and you know, I was involved for, for close to you know, 25 years, my goodness. Um, and, and the time when I really felt uh, that there should have been a lame duck uh, period was when we had amalgamation. And you remember um, uh, amalgamation uh, it, that happened in 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the municipal councils in the, in the, in the various uh, former suburbs that are now part of Hamilton, Stony Creek, uh, Ancaster, Glanbrook, uh, Flamborough, and so on, Dundas. Um, and I can only speak for Stony Creek. But I remember that just before amalgamation, we were dealing with a grants process where we weren't giving uh, too much money to community members who would come in and apply to run some projects to make the community a better place. And there would be a fairly rigorous process. I think, you know, we, we gave away something like $10,000, which is, which is not a lot of money, but it's taxpayers' money. And it went to people who had good ideas that wanted to run some pro projects that made the community better. And usually there's a fairly rigorous process to, to make sure that indeed, you know, they're going to follow through, that they're a legitimate group and so on. Well, let me tell you, just before amalgamation, the due diligence just wasn't there. We were giving money away to people um, because we had some money to give away and the people seemed like good people who would do some good things. And in fact, they did. But the due diligence just wasn't there. And, and because, you know, there was a new council coming in, most of the councillors were not going to be reelected again. And so consequently, that should have really been a lame duck process where you shouldn't have been allowed to do that until the new council was appointed. And that, you know, in a very small way, uh, illustrates why lame duck makes sense. Larry, uh, you talked about the councillors not running, of course, uh, in the upcoming election. Um, the mayor, uh, Eisenberg, of course, said he's not running. Uh, Sam Marula, Russ Powers, Brenda Johnson, Judy Partridge, Lloyd Ferguson, all announced that they're not 
running again. Um, at last count, and I believe it was something well over 60 candidates running across the city uh, in the various wards. Um, is that a good thing, or is that almost, uh, in, in, in my case, when we talked about Ward 4, I think there's about 10 people running in that particular ward. Is that a good thing, or maybe, you know, better for the number to be reduced a little bit? Well, it, it, and of course, Terry Whitehead has not yep. announced yep. in yep. Uh, Ward 12, and I suspect he will not run, although I don't know that for sure. But I suspect that Terry should look after his own health yep. at this point. Um, so my response is simply this. Look, uh, in a democracy, everyone has um, sometimes the opportunity uh, and sometimes the duty uh, and obligation to seek higher office if they think that or to seek office if they think that they can make a contribution. So I would never discourage people from, from running who think that they have something to, to add to the community voice. Uh, so I think in general, it's a good thing. The reality though is uh, as well that when you get 10 or 12 people running, um, and it just, it just um, confuses the situation. I don't know how you whittle, uh, how, how you whittle them down and, and uh, you know the moment you say that you want to whittle people down it sounds and is in fact anti-democratic but it's got to be very confusing for you you're a resident of ward four you've got 10 or 12 people running uh, how do you assess how do you do your due diligence or do you just look for the name recognition if there's anybody that's done anything in the community and vote in that respect so it just makes it more difficult for the voter to assess the qualifications and the program. And of course, added to that in this election, there's a group, there's, there's been a, gr a group that's running a slate uh, from the mayor uh, right almost into every ward uh, that's running a slate uh, of candidates uh, that are interested in defunding the police, in, uh, in uh, uh, improving uh, you know, uh, social services, in, uh, in planting more, I mean, uh, on an environmental uh, agenda, let's put it that way. Yep. And uh, they're out there, um, you know, uh, waving uh, their flag and hoping to, to get elected. Uh, lost in all of this uh, will be, um, you know, the appropriate due diligence. The press cannot possibly cover every single candidate thoroughly mm -hmm. to give voters uh, an opportunity to assess them. So it's going to be up to the voters to uh, to do their own due diligence and study and decide who will best represent their voice. Always fascinating to talk about Hamilton politics with former Mayor Larry DeAnne. Thanks for the update, Larry. We'll uh, we'll stay in touch as the uh, as the uh, election is coming up on October the twenty fourth. Not that far away. Thanks, Larry. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, Ted. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Diana Weeks joins us. So uh, I just thought, first of all, I'd say I wasn't referring to you, but that that's a song. That, it was out before you were even born, but it's a right. great song. So okay. Now, today is Black Cat Appreciation Day, and we were kind of banding around ideas, and we thought, you know, Diana owns a black cat. And I believe the line that you said earlier, what's the cat's name? The black cat's name is Zoe. Zoe. Yeah, I have two cats. Yep. I have a black cat named Zoe and then a tortoiseshell cat named Sweet Pea. But, uh, <laughs> Sweet Pea, that's right. But you said if somebody spent a week with Zoe. Not even a week, an hour. An hour with Zoe, then they would love the black cat. How they old, would love cats in general. They would love cats in general. Uh, Zoe's probably about 13, maybe 12, I want to say. Yeah. So n not a um, <laughs> bad pun here. Not a spring chicken, obviously. <laughs> no, but she acts like one. <laughs> okay. So, what makes Zoe the black cat so lovable? She. Uh, a lot of people think that um, all cats are very standoffish. You know, they have an attitude, and, mm -hmm. and she does have the attitude. Um, but she will curl up on your lap. Keep you warm. She'll purr. She just is a very nice lap cat. She wants attention. She loves when you pet her. She's not vicious at all. She never. I've I've heard her hiss once. 
in the last eight years that we've had her. At your husband, right? Not you. <laughs> at the vet, actually. <laughs> the, oh, and normally she loves the vet, so yeah. they love her at the vet's office, yeah. So, by the way, we should mention that the whole thing about black cat and superstitions, apparently black cats made an appearance thousands of years ago, Greek mythology. Uh, the cats were apparently uh, um, tied in with the goddess of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. Now, I'm trying to find out where this whole thing about black cats, if it, you what, that they walk in front of you, everybody says, you got to avoid it, got to get away from it because it's bad luck. Now, yeah. clearly, you don't think that's the case. No, I think it's a silly superstition. I love dressing up Zoe for Halloween. I take full advantage of putting her near pumpkins and taking photos. But I also love her 364 days of the rest of the year as well, not just as a Halloween decoration. And um, I think a lot of people need to understand that while it is interesting to delve into the folklore, Mm -hmm. um, black cats, uh, you know, I've done many interviews with the SPCA and the black cats are always the ones that are adopted last because people have this silly notion. And I mean, I don't know where exactly it came from and history doesn't really know either, but... At some point, you know, the pairing of witches uh, with cats narrowed down to black cats. So it was the witch with the cat, and then it, somewhere it became the black cat. Apparently, the story goes that, uh, this goes way, way back, that when a black cat crossed your path, it might have indicated that a witch had sent uh, the cat to do you harm. And apparently, many peasants of the day went to the nearest church paid for a priest to bless them and rid them of any curse that may have been laid by the cat. So this thing didn't start several years ago or decades ago. It started hundreds of years ago. Yes, that's correct. And I have something here from uh, history.com or history.ca. It says, written records link black cats to the occult as far back as the 13th century when an official church document issued by uh, Pope Gregory in 1233 said that black cats were declared an incarnation of Satan. See? So this goes back to 1233. Now, talk about the other cat, because since we're talking about cats here, we started yeah. off with black cats, and let's talk about Sweet Pea and why this cat is so adorable for you. So Sweet Pea is a tortoise shell cat, which means, you know, she's like tortoise shell print. She's modeled. She's kind of like a, a, a brownie, uh, <coughs> like a golden mix. Right. Um, and almost all tortoiseshell cats are, are girls. I think it's very rare to find a male tortoiseshell cat. And uh, she has something that people with tortoiseshell cats refer to as tortitude, which is an attitude. Um, and she is very sassy. Sweet Pea only loves me and my husband. Because I, <laughs> I was going to ask, do Sweet Pea and Zoe, Zoe get along? Zoe wants to love Sweet Pea, and she tries, um, but Sweet Pea doesn't really like having any of it. Sweet Pea tolerates Zoe, but they're not besties by any means. I I, I wonder, and I, I always get these ideas at the end of a segment, you know, we're just about out of time. I wonder if I open up the phone lines and just basically ask people one question. Cat or dog, who would win? And I think you know where you lean. Yeah, and you know what? Before uh, we got cats, I was never a cat person. I always was a dog person. I was like, eh, I don't know. And then I got uh, Sweet Pea and my husband got Zoe. We merged them when we moved in together. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with cats. I just love them. They're beautiful little creatures. And and yeah, and black cats get the bad rap. So people need to adopt more black cats. They're precious. They're beautiful with big green eyes. And yeah. How's her appetite? (laughs) Oh, God. Zoe eats a lot. She's always hungry. Uh, (laughs) Sweet Pea is hungry, too, but Zoe will lurk. And uh, we have to lock Sweet Sweet Pea in a room to eat her dinner, or else Zoe will force her and bully her out of the way to eat the rest of her food. Zoe does have an attitude, huh? She does. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So there's the update on black cats and... uh, our guest, Diana Weeks, who's talking about the two different cats, and I'm sure we'll be getting emails about this as well, <laughs> on Black Cat Appreciation Day. Yes. Thank you for this. You are welcome. 
Yesterday, of course, was the 45th anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley, and uh, there was something held uh, in his honor last night, and it was a food drive that was held in Hamilton. Uh, and uh, joining us to talk about that is uh, uh, Cameron Caton, who is also known as COVID Elvis, and he joins us here on 900CHML and 980CFPL in London. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ted. Happy to be here. So let's uh, talk about, uh, this wasn't the first time that you did a food drive. Uh, kind of talk about uh, how it started and uh, what happened last night. Well, we've been doing food drives and uh, singing on the streets since the um, beginning of the global COVID pandemic. Um, so last night was at Eleanor Park. Uh, last year we did 12 what we call pop-up COVID Elvis food drives in the park. And this year, we, we continued with the um, pop-up COVID Elvis food drives in the Park Summer Tour 2022, and Eleanor Park happened to be our seventh one of the year. So I know last year you gained, um, you raised uh, almost, an, and this kind of goes to our poll question of the day, it, you almost raised an imperial ton of food, 1,984 pounds, 900 kilograms. Any early ideas on how much food you um, got last night? Well, I can tell you, we were, we were wanting to break that one, one ton mark, and it was 1,984 pounds of food. Um, I can tell you there was about 300 people in the park. And I can also tell you, well, I can't tell you the exact number because I have a little contest going for the person that gets closest to the actual number. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll get a 30-minute street serenade, but I can tell you we almost doubled it. Now, how did uh, this, um, how did you get the word out yesterday? Was it just Facebook, social media? Well, I shouldn't say just, but was it Facebook, social media, and just kind of word of mouth? Well, I can tell you. A lot has to do with social media, but uh, uh, someone who we met uh, two years ago uh, at a uh, at a birthday party for for a fella, um, him and his kids last year did all kinds of work in trying to you know get the word out. And this year, his name is Bill Yates, and uh, he's a resident over there. And his four children went around with five hundred posters that they uh, had printed up and dropped them off in everybody's mailboxes. Wow. So yeah. now the response last night was obviously, I mean, it it was kind of a sad day because it is the 45th anniversary of Elvis's death, but I'm sure that uh, that people had a lot of memories and had a lot of fun knowing that uh, you are one of the people who can uh, put smiles on faces by singing Elvis songs. Yes, um it was it was it wasn't by design. Um we we picked Tuesdays. I reached out to Bill again and said, "Hey, listen, we're doing them on Tuesday. What's a good Tuesday for you?" And he said, "How about Tuesday the 16th?" I said, "Sure." And then in retrospect, I'm like, "You do know Bill, that's the 45th anniversary of the passing of the the, the king himself, Elvis Presley." And uh no kidding, he said. <laughs> so, um I think I think um it was just all meant to be on that day. So, uh, how, boy, Elvis had a lot of songs, and you know, you're talking about uh, you know somebody winning a half hour serenade. How do you how do you plot your set? What songs did? Obviously, I well, maybe I shouldn't assume, but I would assume one of the songs is Hound Dog. But how do you decide what you want to sing? Um, what I do is, um, when I first started out a little over two years ago, because I've only been doing this for two years, a little over two years, I knew about 15 Elvis Presley songs. Now I know about 170. I give people the option to choose what songs they want to hear. Okay, so if we were going to uh, have something and I wanted you to, to sing two of, well, okay, three, because I like Viva Las Vegas. If I wanted you to sing Suspicious Minds and If I Can Dream, are those songs in your repertoire? If I Can Dream is one that I haven't mastered simply because it's it's so difficult. Yep. Um, but I do have a bright city light who will set my soul who will set my soul on fire, and uh, suspicious minds, of course. Uh, Viva Las Vegas. Um, I give a set list of all the fast songs I sing and all the slow songs I sing, and then people can choose what they want to hear. When you, uh, that's actually an interesting point because. Um, Yesterday, I was kind of you know doing some work ab- about the uh, the anniversary of uh, of Elvis, and I was in the background. I played "If I Can Dream." What is it about that song uh, for a singer? 
and I'm not talking about somebody, you know, trying to imitate Elvis here, just from a pure singing perspective, what makes that song so difficult? Because he he sings in a voice, it's soft and, 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 and warm and, and inviting, and then all of a sudden he hits these notes with a rawness to his voice, uh, with a pitch that's just hard to hit, and... There's just that whole huge variable in that song that makes it, for me, that difficult. And not to say that I could never do it, yep. but I would probably have to adapt to and make it somewhat my own, as he did with every single song he ever sang. You know, he went from, he went from, he went from um, um, falsettos all the way down to baritone when he sang. And we were going to say as well, and we kind of talked about this yesterday, when he first started, of course, he was in uh, the the rock and roll and the uh, rockabilly stage. But rockabilly. But toward the end, we just got, with, with that song, If I Can Dream, and uh, with the other songs, um, In the Ghetto and Suspicious Minds and, and things like that, as a pure singer, this guy really was up there in an upper echelon, wasn't he? Yeah, he could pretty uh, much sing the um, uh, run the gauntlet, as they say, from from anything to you're a heartbreaker, which was completely different than when he started in the 1970s when he started doing um, the covers of the Bee Gees and yep. the Everly Brothers and and with the huge Vegas backdrop and the and the huge band and all the background singers and it was so well produced, but his voice kind of just he had a magic about himself. And uh, I hope that I um, relay that and what was the king when I go out and sing. Because I sing a lot of songs that people are like, I had no idea that Elvis sang that song. Wow. COVID Elvis, uh, our guest on uh, 900CHML and also on uh, 980CFPL in London. Uh, thanks very much for the time, Mr. COVID Elvis. And much, much appreciated. Of course, we should also mention, uh, you know, that's not the name that, well, you're known as that. But uh, Cameron Caton, also known as COVID Elvis. Thank yeah. you very, Thank you very much for the time. I'm continued uh, good work and good luck and stay healthy. I will. And if anybody wants to know where we'll be and what we'll be doing, all you have to do is go to Facebook and visit our COVID-Elvis page, and we post everything that we do. All right. Thanks very much, Dave. Much appreciated. No, thank you. Thank uh, you very much. All right. So there you have it. Everybody's got to end the interview like that. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, a news uh, conference was held today. Actually, it was a video announcement, to be specific. Uh, and uh, Hamilton mayoral candidate Keenan Loomis uh, detailed elements of his plans to restore truth and trust and transparency to City Hall by holding a town hall tour across the city. Joining us to talk about that is the aforementioned Keenan Loomis, who joins us. Keenan, first of all, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ted. Good afternoon. It was great seeing you at the Butter Tart Run on Saturday morning. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think you passed me at one point and kind of waved at me, and I kind of cursed <laughs> under my breath because, <laughs> Keenan, you'll find that as you get older, you're not quite as fast as you think you are. So I just thought I'd throw that with you. So I'm already finding that out. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, made the announcement today. Kind of talk about the town hall tour uh, in the run-up to, to the election. Kind of, if you will, the thought process behind this. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things, as you know, we're all over the city, Ted. We've been uh, knocking on doors and uh, going to a lot of events in every community in this area. And I I happen to, to believe that that's one of Hamilton's greatest strengths is that we're a collection of communities that, uh, you know, was uh, brought together to create one city in 2001. And I love the, the diversity uh, throughout those communities. And I know the people in those communities love where they live. Um, but one of the things that we're finding is that people do not feel heard by City Hall. Um, they don't feel connected to their municipal government uh, either. And so we're going to go out to where the people are, and we're going to uh, talk to them. We're going to do uh, uh, town halls in the lead-up to the election in uh, various communities across Hamilton. And uh, I promise that in my first year as mayor, I'm going to do a town hall in every single ward in this community uh, in conjunction with that community's, uh, with that ward's counselor. And I think that that will go a long way to, to rebuilding trust um, that people have or should have within their municipal government. And so uh, when would the, uh, the first one be? Like, are you planning on going to all the wards before the election is held on October 24th? 
I think that's going to be logistically difficult. Yep. Um, although we're going wherever we're invited. So, you know, people, uh, I was in Eleanor Park last night for the uh, Elvis uh, yep. pop-up. Uh, and it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to meet the folks there on uh, the East Mountain. And, uh, Councillor Jackson was there. And so, uh, you know, certainly wouldn't say no. But uh, I think, you know, we're, we definitely want to do uh, Stony Creek, Flamborough, Ancaster, Dundas, Binbrook. Um, the mountain, you know, obviously I, I know the, the lower city quite well, um, but uh, that's certainly the, the case. But um, no, the, the promise is in, in a first year election to be, visit every single ward. Um, and I think that that is obviously doable if uh, we do one or two a month. And, and uh, it, uh, it'll be a great learning opportunity uh, for us as a, as, uh, you know, as a new mayor coming in. There's going to be a lot of new councillors as well. So I think it'll be a good opportunity for them as well. Keenan, when you uh, go out and about, and we mentioned we uh, ran into the, uh, the Butter Tart Festival run on Saturday, and you were up in Eleanor Park uh, last night. I know that people are coming up to you and vice versa. You're talking to people. Is there one major thing that that you're hearing consistently from people when they talk to you about the plans for Hamilton's future? Well, they definitely uh, want change. Um, people, a lot of people are disgusted by what's been happening, uh, you know, and me included. It's, it's been quite embarrassing. And so that is pretty consistent. Um, and people don't want to look backwards, you know, and, and that's the, the major choice that we have uh, in this upcoming municipal election. We can go backwards or we can start uh a new and exciting path forward. And I think people are really, really excited about the the possibilities there and, and having fresh thinking and new ideas. And, and as I said, we're going to have a lot of new faces around uh, the council table and people are, are rejoicing in that. It, it's not something that uh, people are nervous about. So I think that, um, you know, as I said, restoring truth, trust, and transparency, that's our number one platform, and that's the first thing we're working on because that's what we're hearing. And I always say, if you know, we're focused on the, the, the culture at City Hall first because if you can't get that right, it's hard to get anything else right. Keenan, uh, as you go out and about, as I say, you, you've been uh, at, at a lot of places uh, going door-to-door and going to, to events. Has this been for you physically and mentally uh, more perhaps, I don't want to say demanding, but... Uh, are you surprised at how hard campaigning can be? <laughs> well, we haven't even hit the uh, the toughest part, Ted. Yep. So um, I can't possibly say that this has been difficult uh, because September and October are just going to be completely off the charts. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's why I did, uh, you know, did some, the, the things like the Butter Tart uh, Festival. I've done other runs as well. You know, obviously, you know, right now I have the opportunity, the time to at least carve out an hour for myself every day. Um, to, you know, work out or, or what have you and, and to keep myself mentally fresh and, and, uh, uh, and physically uh, as well. Um, but, no, I, you know, I knew that this was going to be a, a challenge, uh, an endurance. Um, and uh, as well, you know, the probably, well, it, it's definitely the, the hardest job uh, interview process I've ever been through, right, and, and under a, an intense microscope. And I knew all of that was coming, and I would have to say that there really haven't been any um, surprises uh, for me. The surprises are really in, in the connections that we're making with people all across the community, and, and that's been just the, the most fun part. Obviously, you know, I was very much a, a, a part of the, the community and the business community, but that was kind of more of a narrow scope, and, and now we get to deal with all people in all uh, parts of the, the city on a full range of issues, and, and that's been a lot of fun. Keenan Loomis, candidate for mayor for the city of Hamilton, launching the town hall tour across the city if he is elected mayor of uh, Hamilton, which comes up on October the 24th. Keenan, thanks for the time. I, I, as we say, know you've been busy. Uh, the uh, the best is yet to come as we veer in. Once once Labor Day is done, Keenan, that's it. Everything you know, it's it, it's it's just full bore. So uh, we'll see I'm you. Uh, we'll see you around the city. Best of luck. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ted. Uh, all right. There's uh, Keenan Loomis with his his promise, uh, campaign uh, campaign platform to uh, have a town hall meeting in every single ward across the city if he is elected on October the 24th, which is not that far away. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Compola and Batter had been awful in the series. 
The day before the game, we sat down with the Russians. We agree. From now on, it's Bata Dahlberg. It's the deal we made. Dahlberg is sick. I said, I had breakfast with him. He wasn't sick. Canada was supposed to have first choice on a referee for that game, and our choice was sick. Even though I understand he was at the game. I go outside, get Dahlberg. What's happening? Alan, I can't referee. He told me if I do, I'll never referee another game. Absolute chills when I saw that and hear that and so looking forward to the upcoming series about uh, the 1972 Summit Series between Canada and the Soviet Union called Summit 72. Had a sneak peek of the last show in that particular series which deals with Game 8, which deals with uh, Alan Eagleson and all the problems. And joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this particular uh, documentary is Ravi Backwell. He is the co-writer, co-director of uh, the show number four which deals with game number eight ravi first of all thank you very much i gotta tell you i'm having flashbacks already because i remember living that don't we all of uh, a certain age it's so great to be with you and with your great listeners in hamilton i love my hamilton i love inchbury street where my friends lived when uh. they went to mcmaster it's great to be on your show to talk about this incredible event in Canadian history. It was uh, episode four of this uh, is the last episode, and it de- deals indeed with, with Game 8 alone, and the, it will take you through a moment, not just of the hockey, but of the culture, of the time, of the tension, and how much was riding on it, and the Henderson goal, and then the aftermath. We get into it, we kind of look at it through a modern lens, so it's going to be a lot of fun. How did you get involved in this series? You know, I am, um, I'm, I'm a journalist. I work for ABC News in Chicago, but I'm Canadian, and I'm Canadian and a hockey fan. I'm through and through insane about hockey. And my, uh, frankly, my cousin is the famous uh, Jennifer Bachewall, who is the, uh, the documentarian, manufactured landscapes, all these other environmental movies. And her husband and uh, series producer, Nick DePontier, right. they said there wouldn't be a better person to be part of this than you because you basically know the stuff backwards and you know how to write. So can you help us with this project? Because it's so important to Canadians. So I came aboard. I've been doing it in addition to my regular work with ABC News, and uh, it's been a true labor of love, I have to say. Now, uh, when you get uh, the uh, the viz of the uh, the series and, and go through it, and I know it's so tough because they say all the best stuff ends up on the, uh, on the floor, but how did you decide what to keep in, what to keep out? Because I tell you, the stuff you, you have in there again i'm having flashbacks i remember how upset everybody was during and before game eight the clip of mm-hmm. Al, of alan eagleson who actually uh was one of the people that you talked to in that particular piece um how did you decide what to keep and what not well i guess that's storytelling in the end there are wonderful acts and uh edited sections of the movie that had to be dropped for time, quite frankly. I mean, each episode is an hour, but really, in TV time, that's basically 44 minutes. So, great, great stuff had to be dropped, and we just had to stick with the storyline about what happened, why did it happen, what were the backstories to it, and how can we tell it in the most compelling way, because we obviously don't want anyone to change a channel, and I don't think they will, but it, it just becomes a question of how do we move through such an epic period of time in the country when the country was so different than it is now and and tell a story and how not only how did how did what happened but how did it change the game and how did that change the country it is that big and so uh, i think that's that's kind of the magic of storytelling and hopefully people will be happy with what we what we've got but for example there's a great scene that you'll be able to take a look at in social media because we're putting these deleted scenes on social media and things like that, where they decide that Ken Dryden is going to be the goalie of Game 8, even though he wasn't really having as good a series, quite frankly, as Tony Esposito. But there's a reason why they did that, and we have to drop that scene from, from, from Game 8. You'll see it on social media. But basically, you just have to make choices, and uh, hopefully the choices we've made are the ones that are going to make people think we did justice to this amazing story. Our guest is co-writer and co-director of the fourth of a four-part documentary series called Summit 72. It'll be shown on the CBC starting Wednesday, September 14th. And then uh, the last episode, the one uh, that Ravi uh, is um, dealing with, co-wrote, 
co-directed. That'll be shown on, uh, ironically, September the 28th, which is the last day, of course, which is the anniversary of the Paul Henderson goal. Um, I'm wondering, when you sit down and you talk about the uh, Ken Dryden thing, Robbie, one thing that, that stands out at me, and Ken Dryden has always, as we know, been so eloquent. I remember seeing a, a previous piece with him, and, and he admitted, he said, look, going into game, game A, he said, I could become the most hated man in Canada without a question if I didn't deliver. This, I think, Robbie, shows people who weren't there then just how big this was, as you say, not just in sports, but in Canadian politics and Canadian history. And that passion and those stakes, setting the stakes of all this, is what these stories are all about, all four episodes. The four episodes are basically very quickly broken up. Game one in Montreal, where they get blown out of the water, is episode one, and the lead-up to that. Episode two is the remaining games in Canada, Winnipeg, uh, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver, and how that sketches a scene of what hockey meant. And then the third episode is the first three games in Moscow, where they fall behind, and then the final episode that I directed is is, you know, the one for all the Marvels game eight. So setting those stakes and understanding, I mean, you can, you can only imagine. I think one of the things that the players told us a lot is that the moment came to them, this moment of, of absolute accountability, and you could never have thought it would have gotten that big, and you could never have understood how far you would go to win to be able to meet that moment. And it was by far the biggest moment for any of these these guys in their careers, including winning Stanley Cups and Art Ross trophies and all the rest of it. They say to a man, and we, we go through it, why it was so important. So those stakes and the stakes of, of the country and, and, and people's, people being tied into something that they felt was personal to them uh, was unheard of for Canada back at those, in those days. And, and so we try to get into it. Hopefully, we, uh, as I said, we do justice to it. But um, it has been an amazing, amazing um, filmmaking adventure to go through all the archival uh, video and we've restored it all now in 4K. There's wonderful technology to make it really vivid and rich, but uh, it's still it's still about the people and the players and uh, and the pressure that they were under. Yeah, you'll feel it. And uh, the last point that that you talked about, I remember uh, hearing from Phil Esposito where he said in that series he said he never came close to ever consider killing somebody. He said, but in that series he said I came as close to probably wanting to kill somebody as I've ever come in my life. And he said that was scary, and I think that pretty well emphasizes, again, what the players are going through. He says it again in the film, and the way we've treated that when we went and visited with him in Florida. And by the way, i got to tell you, he is as amazing and as engaging as he ever was. You'll love Phil Esposito. If you didn't already, you're going to love him after this movie. And he talks about that, and he talks about why they were pushed to that point and how come it mattered so much and why... The, the notion of Canada meant so much to those players, and they knew they were carrying the country on their backs, and they and they were fans of that. They they welcomed it. They weren't afraid of it. They, they welcomed it, but they were you know they were wary of it as well. And and to this day, as I said, it's still their greatest adventure. And um, hopefully, we're able to uh, able to show people again why it meant so much and how it. And here's the other big piece: how it set up our country to grow and to understand international sports and to use sports as a way for culturally our, our rather monolithic culture to become far more worldly. We were on the world stage. Everybody was watching us for once. And, and you know what? Canada won. <laughs> it, it was like, I remember I was a little kid. I was like, oh, my gosh, we actually won something. <laughs> this is so great. And so you get to relive those feelings again. Ravi Bakewell, uh, the co-writer and co-director of the fourth of a four-part series about the Summit Series. It previews and debuts um, on the CBC on Wednesday, September 14th. Uh, set your DVRs. You will not be disappointed. Ravi, congratulations. It is an absolutely uh, breathtaking look at uh, a big part of Canadian history. Can't thank you enough for taking the time. It is indeed my pleasure. All my best to uh, the great folks of Hamilton, and uh, love your show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's very much. Uh, thanks, Robbie. So there you have it. That is must, must viewing. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Boy, there was a lot of upset people earlier today. Uh, because of what happened on the uh, grounds at Stelco, the planned demolition of the planned uh, the planned demolition rather of the blast furnace on the former Stelco property came as an unpleasant surprise. It was a fact that there was a literally a black cloud 
over the city. And we thought we should probably, uh, the best person to talk about this, because she's expressed concerns about this before, is uh, Environment Hamilton's Linda Lukasik, who is a candidate for Ward 5 in the municipal election. So this is obviously very personal to her as well. Linda, thanks very much for joining us. How are you? I'm, I'm good. How are you doing today? Excellent. So let's, uh, let's talk about this first of all. From what I understand, this was actually planned a while ago, but uh, maybe word didn't get out perhaps as well as it should have? That seems to be what happened. And, and in this case, they, they did have to use some explosives to bring the old blast furnace down. So I, I, think, I think that really threw people off. I know uh, we have a family friend who lives on John Street North, who was panicked, who thought something was going really wrong down in the industrial core uh, as she looked in that direction and heard the explosion and, and saw the black rising up. So it, it, it seems as though somebody forgot to get the word out far and wide enough, given, given what was going to be involved with uh, the demolition today. Now, I know that, uh, you know, the demolition is one thing, the noise and uh, upsetting people. But, of course, the other issue is uh, it's uh, the stuff that is now in the air again because of the uh, planned explosion. I don't even have to ask how concerned you are about that. Yes. And this is we have that concern every day in the community because we do have two steel steel mills and, and they're still engaged in primary steel production. And. There are lots of problem emissions that come out. Today's demolition added to that burden, which is never a good thing. And I, you know, I can understand it's a challenging thing to control demolition emissions, but it sure did look like there was a lot of particulate that got out into our airshed this morning when that blast went off. Now, I know that on Twitter, of course, people were really upset. Uh, one of the tweets earlier was, who approves such operations? Where are the warnings and public consults? The tweet said, I don't know anyone that knew this was happening, but I know hundreds of were terrified by the unaffected explosion, and now the worry about the after effects. So as you say, I, I, I know, and I'm not making light of this, uh, I know Narinda Nan, the Ward 3 counselor, heard a, a lot about it as well. Uh, what about you? Was your um, phone and uh, Twitter page and everything else blazing today? Yeah, I certainly saw lots on, on social media and, and had a number of people reach out to me directly to ask what was happening and people felt it. Oh my goodness. I saw uh, tweets, people up on the mountain felt it, people in Dundas felt it, uh, people felt it from quite a distance away. So, you know, there there was a lot of concern uh, about what was going on down there for sure. And and rightfully so, you know, that's that's a really unnerving thing when you, when you can feel the earth shaking and, and you don't know what's happening. Have you heard at all, or anybody in your office, or any of your contacts, has anybody had a conversation with Stelco since this has happened? No, my my understanding is that the company did contact community liaison committee members uh, late last night, uh, after 7 p.m. last night, and there was just a general indication that early morning they would be doing this, but there was really no warning about be prepared for you know, a major boom for a lot of noise. Uh, people saw that, as I did, with a tweet from Hamilton Police Service. And, and they, I think they wanted to make sure that there weren't voters too close. But I think they also, it was a good thing, they, they indicated that there was going to be a loud explosion and people should be prepared for that. And that came, I think, just before 8.30 this morning. So again, you know, lot, not a lot of lead time. So it really does feel like more needed to happen. And I think... I'm going to point out too that we've got uh, you know, other standing facilities. I think about ArcelorMittal de Fasco next door. They're mm-hmm. transitioning to new technology, and soon they won't need their blast furnaces. So there, there's more of this likely in the city's future. So what do we need to be talking about and thinking about to make sure that people get proper warning, and and we're doing a better job of ensuring that we don't see those great releases of black that 
includes particulate and other contaminant getting out into our air. I know that uh, when something like this happens, you're always um, uh, tweeting the pictures showing us the uh, the clouds and the plume of smoke. I know this happened uh, in 2019 at Hamilton Specialty Bar. That caused a lot of concern back then. Of course, we all hoped that uh, that was it, um, and clearly that's, that's not the case. So as you say, this could mean even more with the fact that ArcelorMittal DeFasco at some point will have to go through the whole thing again. That's right, and and I, I would point out, you mentioned Councillor Nan earlier, and Councillor Nan and her staff have done a lot of work in the aftermath of that specialty bar demolition to, to try to push for improvements to demolition permitting and how that works within the municipality. So I really, I, I really hope that work continues, and I certainly support that work just to pay more attention to how are we dealing with these things, who gets informed. Uh, what measures could be added to provide the public with proper notification. We don't want to have to keep on learning over and over again with these kinds of experiences that we maybe don't have the right measures in place. So I'm I'm hopeful we'll see more efforts from within the municipality moving forward to deal with this. And you were saying that uh, we found out about it last night and then the police tweeted it this morning, but uh, again, not a lot of people, well not a lot, but people aren't on their phones at that particular time. I mean, I live in Ward 4 and I was up on the South Mountain this morning at Upper James and Rimal area at 9 o'clock. I didn't know what happened uh, until I, uh, I came into the station today and, and I'm on my phone all the time, except while driving, of course. So, um, I mean, I didn't know that this was going on, and I guess I'm like everybody else or a lot of people, that they really didn't get the heads up in advance until it was uh, literally too late. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And it feels like that the the company should have put out a media release so that that information would have been out there well in advance and people would be prepared and hopefully more people would have been aware of what was going on. All right. Uh, hopefully uh, things will uh, calm down a little bit and then uh, we'll get the explanation as to uh, what happened. And again, what can be prevented to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Linda Duclassic from Environment Hamilton, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, I, I hope for all of our sakes it's a calm night tonight and things, uh, you know, we can enjoy the sunset and not have to worry about a black cloud of smoke over a city. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And moving forward, hopefully cleaner air in our future. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Lynn. Much appreciated. No problem. Thank you. So there you have uh, the explanation from Environment Hamilton as to uh, what they think happened. And uh, not getting enough notice is, seems to be the big thing. So people can, I guess, in many ways, brace themselves. I want to go back a little bit uh, and talk about this uh, this upcoming uh, documentary series. And um called Summit 72, as will be showed. Uh, it premieres uh, on the CBC at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, September the 7th. Uh, make that Wednesday, September 14th. And uh, our guest uh, last half hour, Ravi Bakewall, is the co-writer and uh, co-director. Um, it's a four-part series. He was involved in the last show, number four, which deals specifically with uh, the game eight. And I keep telling people, you know, unless you lived it, you have no idea what this was about. Uh, the uh, the Cold War was absolutely something that everybody was dealing with. And at the time, people didn't really understand what it was all about and what this meant. But they found out really quick. And, you know, um, for example, we have some clips that we lifted from uh, the show. And this is from number eight. This is from uh, game number eight, the show number four. Uh, when they talk to various players 50 years later, including uh, the defenseman, Brad Park. Greatest experience that I've ever had, both professionally and personally, to have to win the last three games in Moscow during the Cold War. There's no way that you can replicate that. There is no way that anything like that could bring the country together for one game. Now, people who watched Game 8, because there was a tradition in international hockey where the teams line up on both blue lines, they play the anthems, and then they all skate up to each other and present each other gifts. Team Canada awarded the Soviet players... This is from the Calgary Stampede, and you've seen them, you know, those white Stetson hats that they wear at the Calgary Stampede. That's the gift that they gave to each individual Soviet player. Well, after the game that the Soviets lost, Dennis Hull noticed something. Before the game started, we gave them cowboy hats. 
And when I was leaving, I went by the dressing room and in the garbage can was all the cowboy hats. They wouldn't let them keep them. There's also a surprise that the Soviet team found out. I'm not going to tell you what it was. Boris Mikhailov, the captain of that team, talks about uh, what the coach said to them immediately after losing Game 8, 6-5. to five. Uh, Ken Dryden, of course, is uh, somebody who um, has a prominent role in Canadian history because, of course, he became a, a member of the Senate and was an MP and played uh, hockey. Of course, we all know his history, but um, he is very eloquent when it comes to talking about the 72 series. And, and what it was all about was very uniquely summed up by Ken Dryden. I can't think of another competition where, when it was done, it meant as much to the team that lost as it did to the team that won. I think it's because neither of us got what we wanted and both of us got what we needed. We went into that series wanting to win all eight games and win by big scores. We didn't get that. The Russians went into that series wanting to win the series. They didn't get that. But what they got and what they needed was to show they could compete at the top being themselves. And what we needed was to win. Highly recommended. I'm telling you, if you lived it, you will. And I'm getting chills listening to that already. And I've already seen the uh, game eight several times already. Watched it and taking notes and lifting clips. And I'm I'm still getting chills. So it's Summit '72. Uh, thanks to our special guest Ravi Bakewell, who joined us today to talk about that on the CBC starting Wednesday, September 14th. This is the 50th anniversary of uh, Summit '72. 50 years already. Some of the players uh, from Team Canada are no longer with us. Uh, some of the players from the Soviet team, obviously, uh, we, you've heard some of the stories as well. Um, you know, Valerie Harlamov, no longer with us, uh, died in a tragic car accident. Other players had a really terrible life after they served their nation and played for the Soviet Union team and then were basically booted to the curb and, and had to fend for themselves. So it is must-watching television. Thanks to William Erskine, who put the show together, the show content producer, and Will Weber, who uh, put a, everything else together technically. We'll be back tomorrow morning. Uh, no, we won't. It'll be tomorrow afternoon, starting at 3 o'clock uh, here on 900 CHML and 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.